other things to do. Important things. My work, my problems, my solutions. If I try to pluck my ears, I can still hear it. Through the bones in my head, through my skin. but a listening device. As if I have grown hollow. As if I am nothing but an echo chamber for whatever sound comes into me. As if I am nothing but an ear. As if I am all ears. <laughs> impervious as the thick all right and that was a sample of the work you're going to hear from the artists today um eric bowersfeld and jim mckee jim mckee is a sound designer eric bowersfeld is a voice talent uh also sort of a producer director has written his bit um he has been in radio since 1961 doing the piece uh the Black Mass series for KPFA in uh, Berkeley, California. Um, been there through all the, uh, the tumultuous 60s doing uh, radio drama, avant-garde stuff. Uh, finally got his own uh, sources of funding, was able to produce um, a whole bunch of in- very interesting pieces, including most of what we're going to focus on today in our discussion, which is about uh, field recording, his initial works, uh, like Object Piece with Randy Tom, who of course um, is an amazing sound designer who's gone on uh, to be very popular in Hollywood did the sound score for Apocalypse Now, 
So we've got a, a great range of experience, um, a guy who's been independently producing um, for a lot of years, uh, also still on the radio, and uh, get to talk to him and longtime collaborator uh, Jim McKee about their work. Jim, Eric, huge, wide, welcomed Radio Drama Revival. So happy to have you here. Hi, Fred. Well, welcome from Maine. So there's a lot to cover, a lot of years productions, but I'd like to actually start with the, the two of you. Um, you've been working together for a lot of years. Um, obviously, you're both in the Bay Area, but uh, do you want to talk about how uh, you, Eric, and Jim, how did you started uh, working together? Yes, almost, almost the same thing as Randy. I met Randy in uh, at KPFA <laughs> during the time when it was getting to be awful. Mm. He came in my office one day. He was, he was, a, he was just a roughneck around town. <laughs> And uh, he said, oh, I'd, I'd like to do some work with you, if you like. And I was doing something else, didn't pay much attention. But he walked across the room, stood by the door, looked in one last look and said, oh, I also record sound. <laughs> I think what happened is I just grabbed him, pulled him back into the room, and from there off, thereafter. And then I met Jim the, almost the exact same way. He was over in the station doing a program for our department. One sweaty, hot night. Jim, do you remember yeah, radioactive theater. I I was working as a sound designer for Antenna Theater at the time. No, and then Eric actually has been following theater in the Bay Area forever, and began uh, to see what I was doing with with Chris Hardman and Antenna Theater, which was a kind of unique Walkman theater where audiences would show up and don these headphones and actually walk through, be it be it attended in the play. And for me, as a sound person, it was great because I get to make the whole soundtrack and record the voices and make the music, and and the whole world was, you know, in these headphones. And then Chris would make these these uh, incredible masks and costumes and and stage settings. So Eric Eric came to see some of that work, and then uh, uh, because of because I had this this job with Antenna, I also had a studio, and then Eric started bringing over some of his early location projects. I think it was Candles was the first one. My entire world was uh, sound with this theater company, and uh, even more so because the whole the whole plot and all of the information was delivered through the headphones. So, yes, and also the, the plays were on location. There was one wonderful one on a beach, and there was one at a gas station. There was one in a high school uh, grounds, walking around it with a narrator, a young a kid in high school. It was a wonderful thing. We put the f- soundtrack on the air. And so various groups were interested in in this, the, the possibility of location. We had a one of the writers that... We, we chose writers in the Bay Area so that they could come into the station and see how radio drama was done. And part of my... Uh, Hope was to be able to interest people who were talented and liked that kind of a, of a, a, an art and to have a chance to do them. And the best way is to bring them into the studio and let them watch and then let them participate. And that's how we got a lot of writers and actors. And, uh, and then the most important thing, sound design. Two very important sound designers. And one was Randy Town. And it happened because this... Uh, this author, who wrote a very good play that uh, is on my list, maybe you'll hear it sometime, called Head, uh, was fine, but it was a torment to do in those studios where you'd be interrupted every few minutes. Someone would take the machine away and so on. So he wrote a play that 
could only be produced entirely away from the studio, out in a desert area. It was called Object Peace, about a an artist who digs ditches in the desert. <laughs> that all you have to do is put a microphone in, and the acting will tell the rest of the story. All the sounds that you hear are, are what would be on a tape that he's doing for a museum as his final offering. He's planning his own suicide because of the circumstance of the plot. And uh, so that was the, the background. And we went out, and we found practically no place in all Northern California that didn't have sounds that we didn't want. <laughs> Just like the studio in KPFA. Until one summer, a reservoir right near the Lucas Film area now, at least it wasn't there then, uh, dried up. And we walked out into the middle of the, the reservoir and it was silent as death. There was no sounds except a few birds far off and other you know, an airplane might fly over. Mm -hmm. But the writer said, whatever happens is part of the play. <laughs> he's, he's doing this play for the museum, and it's it's an amateurish work. He just sticks a microphone in the ground. He has a shovel, and he's digging the last of his, of his uh, artworks in the desert. I played that part, so I had a shovel and, and shovel during the whole recording session and did the part. And another actor... Uh, I played the other part. It was just two people. Thereafter, we were entranced with the possibilities of doing things on location. Not only did we have to, <laughs> but it became interesting. And Jim and, and Randy are uh, do a lot of work in film town. One one thing that interests me about this is, of course, now um, you know I'm talking in this. My my recorder here is a Zoom H2. It's small enough I can fit it in my pocket. Um, records for four hours in in high quality digital format. But that you know this has only been out for two years. Back uh, when you did Object Piece, it was a whole different ball game, right? Like what what did you actually use uh, to record that um, that you had to haul out into the desert with it's you? A very good microphone that was uh, probably much better than this artist would have gotten hands of, but. He was in the art, so he could easily have gotten the microphone. That's all we needed. We just put the microphone in the ground. I tied it to a box. Yeah, originally, I think Randy was, was uh, had to lug around a, a field Nagra machine, and they were they were pricey. Boy, it was a it was a great machine, but it weighed like I don't know forty pounds. So you know you. It it have a wear and tear on your shoulder by the end of the day, and, it, and it, then it, and then everything moved to DATs, so, and then little DATs, and then now we're on flash recorders. No, oh, yeah, and, and of course, of course, what's interesting is that, of course, uh, you know, working in film, I imagine that there there's a bit of crossover between the uh, process of having a microphone in the field recording a radio play is not that different than going out and recording, you know, the sounds of a jungle or the sounds of a helicopter or other kinds of sounds that you would need to record in the, in the film work. That's right. That's right. And this with the imagination of a writer. Part of it, the part of it that actually played out to our favor the most was the fact that you put actors in a real situation you put sound designers and writers in a real situation and you find that they do things that they normally wouldn't do in a studio behind a microphone. Uh, Eric picked up his shovel, you know, in that piece, and that became that became another character in the whole play. And we find is that when they, when an actor is in, in a situation, uh, they, they tend to, to move, and we ended up blocking, you know, certain recordings. 
sessions, we would block the scene so the actors would, you know, come through a door or, or you know, enter a telephone booth or, uh, you know, pick up something or lay down or, you know, all of these physical gestures that actors make uh, actually translate pretty well if you listen. A lot better than an actor faking it behind a microphone in a studio. Jim was saying it's quite true. I didn't know what I was going to do with that shovel. I didn't. I didn't rehearse anywhere. There wasn't any mounds of sand somewhere in Berkeley. But it didn't take but a minute to know that that shovel was important. All right. We'll just get a taste of it. Let's uh, hear a sample from that piece, object piece. Everything I do is art. Well, that's because I am an artist, and this this ditch I've dug. This is art, too. My name is Dak, as you probably know. <clears throat> and I make contemporary art, which brings us back to the ditch. And the tape recording of me digging a ditch. <gasps> Both the tape recorder and the ditch are art. Oh, oh, here comes Charles. <laughs> Charles is my assistant, ladies and gentlemen. He likes to be called Chuck. I call him Charles. Hello, Jack. Hello, Charles. Come on, let's go. Oh. Well, now, why don't we take a break first? Here, here, have a drink. Have a drink of this. Oh, we have to talk. Well, anything you want, Charles. Dad! <laughs> what is this stuff? <laughs> That's pinky special scotch. I buy it from a guy in Reno. <laughs> don't you have any water out here? No, I'll stick to whiskey. <laughs> How hot is it? Well, I don't know, Charles. I'm sorry about this. Sure, sure. I told Judy you'd never kill yourself. <laughs> but she sent you anyway, didn't she? <laughs> that was sweet of her. And nice of you. Very nice of you. Oh, she would have come, but she had that lecture. I guess it was a pretty big deal. I can understand her not coming. Oh, she felt real bad about your telegram. Oh, yes. <laughs> the telegram. <laughs> the shadow knows. Stop. Am at the project. Stop. <gasps> Come pick up my buddy. <laughs> Stop. You know, I'm recording this, Charles. I wouldn't do that. And that was a piece from Object Piece, um, sound recordist Randy Tom. And uh, Eric, tell me about how this changed um, how you went about doing radio drama. Well, another thing about uh, the film uh, uh, sound designers, both Jim and Randy, and as I know, there are many others, but uh, is that they need, they want to be where the the film is being made, so that they can get a sense of the location in which they can see and hear things that the director doesn't see or hear, or anyone else. He's a real artist in any ever sense of the word that have developed 
uh, in the area of sound. They do other things. Randy did a whole bunch of of uh, uh, sound works, just sound for German radio, and Jim has been doing this with uh, Finnish radio for years, and they're marvelous uh, 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 people in these uh, places. But also, it's amazing that uh, our own actors picked up very quickly and did far better than they usually do on the stage uh, in these little plays that we did. We got then funding to do a whole series based on this idea. The idea was to bring everyone to the location. The writers should examine the location. You know what they'll do? They'll say this is taking place in a construction zone. And if they ever were in a construction, <laughs> in a construction zone, uh, they would have had much more to draw upon. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we knew the writers, and they were, we selected the ones who were interested in this. Anyway, it was... A lot of trial and error. We did small things, but then eventually we did. We worked with West German Radio on a very uh, uh, fine project called Hirschbill USA. We have all those programs too, and many of those were done on location. We were all over the place with uh, with very fine scripts, uh, and uh, they were broadcast in Germany. So we then got contact with the outer world where radio drama in its true art form still flourished and never stopped in Europe. You know, one of the I think one of the most critical aspects of location recordings and it's 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 something that you you overlook just because people assimilate almost without thinking about it, is that when you're in a location, if you're say on a street and a siren or fire truck goes by you raise your voice to, to accommodate to that other noise being there. Or if you're in a very quiet, quiet room setting, small room or large church, you, you automatically adjust the, the volume and the way you project your voice. And it's very difficult in a studio setting to, to get an actor to do that, to, to, to direct them to do that specifically. An actor goes into the room, they find their voice in the room, in the room, it becomes part of the character. The room is actually their acoustical stage for them, and it's it's another it's another kind of it becomes another character or a, another type of a prop that that is. It would just take hours and hours to try to simulate that in the studio when you plop a when you plop a, a an actor you know onto a chair or or. Good actors know how to accommodate those things. We had two elderly ladies in a wonderful little play by Millicent Dillon. Uh, two elderly ladies sitting on the beach watching the sea. But there was a very strange little drama going on with these two. You find out about it, but it's not. The main thing is when we got to do it on the beach in these chairs with the wind blowing and the water right nearby and other sounds, they had a funny clicking sound, which turned out to be the little device that fish fishermen have on the end of this fishing pole. And on that beach, there was a lot of fishing going on. I don't know if we ever fitted that in. But you could hear that they were responding not just to the lines. They knew the lines very well. But to the things that were happening around them. When the surf comes in, it has a rhythm. When someone yells at a great distance, that has a sound. There were people playing at the far end of the beach. And that is a very dramatic characteristic to use it right and that's what happened in that play. And wish we could do more. Uh, we did, I don't know how many, a lot of them. But 
that's the direction that interests us all very much. But the significant thing about it is that it gets everybody who is entailed in the drama, in the work, to be involved in every aspect of it, in the production, in the, uh, the location, in the, all the sound work, uh, and accidents. In fact, we did a long thing with uh, Lawrence Rolinghetti, whatever its difficulties were. <laughs> we recorded him, I don't know, 10 years, in all sorts of places around San Francisco. And then finally, it is uh, abodes in Bixby Canyon in Big Sur. And there, some of the most phenomenal things happened. And Jim, you can tell about it too, but this was a case where the surrounding suddenly entered the play and took a vital part. I can almost hear it. I can almost see it out there. There is a, a beating of wings and a white radiance, a white radiance, a brightness, a brightness falls from the air. What was I saying? I forget exactly. And a white radiance. Something about a beating of wings. A white radiance. A brightness. A beating of... I must have been dreaming. I was saying I, I heard something. Some beating of wings, a light. I can see them marching down there, uh, thousands of them, thousands of those little two-legged creatures, each with a little flag, each waving a little flag. And what was fine was when the, when the writers themselves began to look around. Uh, one of the writers, was, she wrote a a little play that took place in a bus station. So she stayed a while, quite a while, at a big Greyhound station in Los Angeles and found they had a lot of things that she would never have thought of. One was a alcove or an yeah, an alcove of uh, game shows, video shows. Video, video arcade. Yeah, and that became a central character in the plot. We, we recorded this at a, uh, we recorded the, the bus terminal in San Francisco, I mean. Yeah, yeah, that turned out to be a, a, an extra bit of drama because in the midst of recording, there was a guy on the payphone next to us begging for money on the other end of the, to someone else on the other end of the line. It turned into a big drama scene. <laughs> trying to get money to get back home, and the operator wouldn't put him through. Yeah. That became a kind of a... This was a, a... Actually, we didn't use this in the play. In fact, the uh, the author thought the play should be done with just that, and, you know, it could commit to something. 
Yeah, and and I wonder how how much have you felt that radio drama, you know, in, in the '60s was certainly um, well on its way to its decline as far as a mainstream medium. So, how much did you feel that you were either reviving radio drama or uh, continuing the tradition? Or we have a new uh, uh, opening in the internet. Mm-hmm. Now we don't need radio stations to broadcast our programs. We can get them up on the air, but there are immediately problems. Uh, the, the people who distribute them have to think of the people who are going to pay a little bit for them and send them down. So they don't want certain things, and they want others. That's the bad beginning sign. Mm-hmm. But uh, PRI has been very good to us and broadcast practically everything we gave them, and others too. But this reaches a large audience. And one of the things about the art of radio drama is as an art form, it's like other great arts. There are all kinds of things that go on in any period in an art form. Just take painting. In any one year, you get avant-garde, you get uh, paintings that go back for centuries, and you get things that are experimental and bizarre, like uh, Dada and so on. And that's the whole scene of the art. And without any of the experimental things, the rest suffer. And if you just put on traditional radio drama, the artists who can do things that are imaginative don't get a chance to be heard and don't get a chance to be produced. Now, that was always a difficulty with the radio station, but it didn't affect us very much. We did what we wanted, and we got the money to do it, until even the sources of money were commercialized and got a touch of the corporate interest, uh, and that made certain kinds of requests or proposals unacceptable. And that's one of the dangers that all the arts face in the world today. So that range of things, is what's missing in our country. And it would probably never come back unless something happens with the Internet. If we can get the PRIs and the other sources, distributors, interested in an idea like this, so they take a chance on work that is not going to reach everybody, that's experimental, that's inventive, and lose then all of the principal sources of innovation in an art form, that would be terrible. But... Uh, in America, we have a few people that are that are doing what they can in that in that way, but not very much. Yeah. I have to go to Helsinki. <laughs> Actually, I have to go. I have to go to Keith Day, which is the person yeah. that I work. The person that I work with, Audrey Hutamaki, doesn't even use this facility anymore. He's got a cabin about ten kilometers from the Russian border, and uh, it's it's in a it's in an environment that. So incredibly quiet that we just record in his cabin, and and uh, he's got you know nice, really nice chefs and Neumanns, and uh, everything's done right there on the laptop. So hang out in the ca- hang out in the cabin for twelve, fourteen days with a couple of people. You. You're bound to do something. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's an interesting juxtaposition of two worlds. Well, two two phenomena. One is that, um, in one way, the the influence of radio stations has has decreased. Yet, and the ability for people to produce independently has increased. Both the cost of equipment, you know, like you just mentioned with the laptop, you know, that's much a far cry from a full full radio station. Um, so, the, so the means are there for independent producers, yet uh, the economic model um, still hasn't hasn't seemed to follow yet. Yes, yeah, so all the very good things that came out of Europe were fully supported by tax money, mm-hmm. and uh, they had all the grand 
equipment that they needed. I mean, their, their studios were miracles. They could change a studio sound ambience to anything they wanted. And they did things in locations that were quite grand. I heard you. And, but they had to develop special skills to do it. And these skills are available everywhere. A lot of people are interested in sound and this kind of thing, but they have no opportunity to practice it. And uh, they, I mean, there's no, there's no salary involved. And they lived, they lived, you know, squanderously. And, uh, so that it's not supported in the grand style that the arts eventually were in, in Europe for radio. But now, that's going. When I first went to the European uh, uh, Union uh, 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 to hear what they were doing, the first thing they said at this long in, in Berlin, what do we expect from America? <laughs> I said, beware, just beware. And when I explained it, they said, oh, this cannot happen here. This would never happen here. No, that laws. They always sometimes little advertisement at six o'clock, but nothing with the children, you know. We have that all figured out. Now, they're crying. What is, what is it? What do they cry? So, uh, spreading everywhere. It's a worldwide phenomenon. And the BBC is putting out less and less interesting things, less and less experimental things, and less and less opportunities for really skilled actors to play the part. They had the best performers in the world, practically, in their radio drama. And the same way with German, the actors in Germany, and in all the countries. This is a, a genuine art form. And and actors are a supreme element of that. And they would be part of it in a minute if it were available. But something in the world that's very powerful doesn't want that. Yeah, and yet in spite of that, you have managed to uh, do a decent job. Like you, you did have some projects that were funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, you've, you've, you know, you've managed to, you managed to scrape together um, a lot of really great projects over the years. Oh, yes. There was over 15 projects that we were funded for by the... Oh, all the sources of, of, of funding. There were, I forget what the names were saw. There was a satellite fund. There was other funds. Yeah. And we did radio drama from 1961 or something like that on. And were, when we started getting funding, then there were regular projects mm-hmm. uh, of experimental work, of all kinds of work. The complete range of radio drama we were able to, to, to play at. Not all were very successful, but a lot of them were. And that what we wanted was the opportunity and the funds to be able to begin to do radio drama. At least I did. This was my chosen field when I was, oh, five or six years old, sitting under my grandmother's uh, uh, dinner table in the dining room listening to the witch's tale sketch. <laughs> I mean, whoever would have thought of the old witch Nancy in the fireplace with the cat Satan saying, <laughs> I be twit, 900 years old, and you were going to listen to a story that I'm going to tell you, little Satan. The cat was meow, and the wind was howling outside, and it was, it was very effective. You couldn't pull away. It's amazing how when radio first started, it, it didn't matter whether, this, whether the programs were brilliant it mattered to be able to hear something that was going on outside, somewhere else, and it stirred the imagination. You didn't have to have a, a multi-complex uh, gun uh, to 
uh, to do the thing. There was a, I think it was uh, Buck Rogers in the 20th century. There was a character, Dr. Hewer, who invented a psychic restriction writing. And if he fired it at somebody, that person then had to be obedient to him. They was like slave. And uh, all it had for sound effect was bzzzt. Yeah. Bzzzt. That's all we needed, you know. You saw the thing going off. You know. And uh, it, 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 it excited the imagination. Another aspect, I think, of radio drama is the importance of the imagination of a listener that adds. You become a participant in the work. Um, okay, uh, and change gears for a minute. Um, Eric, during our email correspondence, you'd mentioned something about you um, and uh, Jim putting together a uh, sound design conference there in San Francisco. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Yes, well, we, Jim, maybe you can talk about this. We, we, uh, uh, we got funded to do a conference on sound design many years ago, and it was astounding. Absolutely, it was mainly a conference for people who are already accomplished in, in radio drama and radio sound and so on, to hear and uh, share their work with the others and discuss the prospects for it. And uh, such people as John Cage was there. The German, German radio was represented by Klaus Scherning, the leading man in German uh, experimental uh, uh, radio, and uh, from Britain and from Australia. Tim, were there others? Yeah, it was, it was all, all over the map. But the, uh, the, the, the point of, I think, it's a, a, an interesting point of, of all this, we, Harry and I put together a similar conference about 10 years after that one, and, and the notion was, let's look outside of our sound field. Who's, who's, the, guy, who's the guy, the producer that you like the most in popular music mix? Who's the guy that you like the most in uh, uh, mixing for films? Who's the guy you like, you know, most for nature recordings? And what you find is as soon as you get outside of your specific di- discipline, you meet a guy who, say, mixes for, for music. And the skill set that they have there, in terms of just sheer technical console expertise, is... Right here is beyond what, you know, some guy in doing traditional radio drama is. And similarly, what happened here in the building we're in right now, when Apocalypse Now began, there was a guy down in the basement, one of Eric's students, actually, Richard Beggs, who was doing just that. He was recording and mixing music. And then you had a guy named Walter Murch, who had... You know, his training in sound for film, all of a sudden the, the film mag machine hits the 24-track machine and the, tech, the technical, ex, the, the different expertises in those fields began to meld into a whole new kind of soundtrack. And I think that's what, you, what people were, were listening to and still kind of inspired by, by the Apocalypse Now soundtrack. The sound, uh, sound design conference, by the way, took place in Lucasfilm. We had their huge technical building and a wonderful auditorium to bring the guests to see and hear, as well to hear, works that were, were created by some of the people that were there. And uh, also people like Randy and, and, uh, and, and Biggs, what was his name? Uh, Beggs. And Matt. Richard and Ben Bird. And every- yes. 
and also, but to have uh, John Cage actually create a horse girl before our very years was a experience. Huh. It was wonderful. And he just thought it up at the minute using sounds that, how do you, how do you describe it, what he did, Jim? He had a, he had a series of, uh, I don't know, 40 or 50 three by 5 cards that had ideas on them. And uh, he actually he actually told Eva Soltis, who was helping helping you put the the show together, that he felt like he had gotten to the point where he wasn't he wasn't able to do lectures anymore because he would lose his train of thought um, before he concluded with you know whatever he was talking about. So he decided to get uh, what's his name Roberts to run a eight track recorder. And he started on a first pass, I think it was nine minutes, and he would leave there to be long spaces between his ideas, his spoken ideas. And then at the end of the nine minutes, they would they would rewind and record the, the second track. Now they're putting his voice back into the room, and he's hearing himself and going through the next three-by-five card, the next three-by-five card. And then he did, I think, seven or eight successive passes, passes of this thing. So it turned out that all of his ideas was there, were there, and he could hear himself reiterate those ideas, and it became kind of this spherical, almost like a spherical uh, listening to. Well, it touched on other things as well, memory. When you heard these yeah. things, you heard what he was listening to and, and what, yeah. what, he, what effect they had on him, and he, and he built on them. But some of them were very mysterious, and it was it was extraordinary. Very simple work. Yeah, yeah. Some of the more experimental, experimental things in Germany are very simple. Ten minutes, five minutes. Uh, then, of course, John Cage did the thing that lasted an hour. <laughs> yeah, they nothing of Ophelia. Yes, Ophelia, the words of Ophelia. That was, uh, it, it, it's amazing, that was as avant-garde as you could get in sound design. Yet people, when they heard it on the air, said that they were driven to tears. They didn't know why. And it, it isn't difficult to find out when you hear it. This, yeah. this woman, from all the lines in Hamlet, uh, slowly her, the words begin to die out as she reaches the end of her life. She's just a character who's central. They did it on stage. And the sounds were around us, but we did it. And Klaus Schoening did it. In Spanish and English and in another language. <laughs> you name it. <laughs> and everywhere it was it was highly liked. Maybe not by the, the amount of audience that are now celebrating our wonderful poor Michael Jackson. But uh, it had an enormous audience. And for the avant-garde or for the experimental or inventive, you don't need a top number audience. You need an audience. And whatever size it is, 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 a, is very welcome. Uh, but you don't, everything, you don't have to, your program isn't put on because it reaches the numbers, John. And that's a crucial aspect of the commercialization of our whole country, I guess, world, eventually. Yeah. Uh, no, and it's interesting. So it's, there's really this merit in, it sounds like there's this coming together of cultures, of, of talent, and then, and really truly artists. And I, I think 
you know, when you get into sound, of course, since there's the economic model for radio drama is so scarce, you're, you're very rarely going to meet a full-time radio dramatist. But you may find someone who's in film who is, you know, like, like Randy Tom, who's done a couple, you know, in, in, his, in his resume, there's a few audio drama productions and, and things like that. Oh, yes. Well, he did quite a number of them. They were all broadcast in Europe. And we broadcast them here. KPFA didn't know half the things I put on the air at a certain time. <laughs> well, I don't. Uh, but, you know, we were all members of the station and had a, a, a status of seniority. And all these people who are taking over all the programming are individually very nice people. But to hear jazz pop music all day and all night on the station, that was supposed to be culturally. But, you know, the audience is a far cry from the vision, the original vision. But it was certainly great help and service to me. Just learning how to do the, the basic elements of radio drama at that station with the help of John Whiting was an opening to me that I would never have gotten otherwise. So I have great, great respect and loyalty, as I thought, to our KPFA. And there are other stations too uh, in, the, in the Pacifica network. Uh, so, Eric, if you don't mind, I'd actually like to ask you a question. Um, this was actually sent in by a listener who wanted to know uh, about your uh, relationship with Tom Lopez, who I believe you knew at um, KPFA in San Francisco back in the day. Um, there is an interview that's out there um, where Tom uh, mentions your name as one of his influences. And, and I wanted to see if there's if you want to talk a little bit more about your relationship with Tom. There's some things I would never tell anyone about my relationship. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever is fit for the I air. However, among those that I can, <laughs> I'm only joking, of course. <laughs> uh, he came to the station, KPFA, he was interested in radio drama, and I said, go ahead. And whatever he did, we put on the air. I can't remember them all. But he did a very funny little play that I think someone was looking at a television set. And in the television set, there was a television set. And as the play progressed, it went closer and closer to the television or, or the radio. I forget what it started out with. But it was this tunnel of inter, interjections that went on everlastingly. Uh, from one television set to another television set that was in that television program to another, to another, to another. I don't know how it rounded out, but I thought it was an ingenious idea. And I'm sure he finished it. Must ask that time. But he was obviously a very talented person when he was a KPFA. He learned very quickly how to do whatever he wanted to do. And it was wonderful having that. I, I went up to see him before that, which for one weekend. But don't see him enough. So you've got a career of work here spanning over 40 different years, all kinds of different pieces, uh, most of it which were originally uh, produced um, and broadcast on the radio. Where do you actually hear those now? Um, how can we get them in the digital age? We're just getting to the point now. Eric is Eric and I have been working on a website for oh, two or three years, mm-hmm. and we've gotten uh, the framework of it up pretty much. And uh, the plan is that Eric is, Eric is archiving each of these individual, uh, well, there's, I think, 13 or 14, 15 in a series, different series, mm-hmm. and then each series has, you know, it's, 10, 15, or 20, or 30. 15 or 20 programs. So he's creating individual pages for each of these programs, and on them will be a three- or four-minute sample of the piece. 
Okay, great. And then I think I'm going to work. I'm going to work with uh, John or or um, Jay PRX. I think the PRX has got to deal with iTunes now. So if an individual if an individual wants to buy them, they can uh, you know go go directly to uh, an iTunes situation, and PRX then will be the one who who you know is the middleman for the you know, whatever broadcast. Um, excellent. Well, uh, Jim, Eric, thanks so much for your time today. Um, again, you'll be able to find their work soon at uh, the Bay Area Radio Drama's website, bardradio.com. Um, you can also, their work will be on PRX at some point. Um, if, if you if you look for it, you can find Black Mass, all of its audio. Um, I think it's been archived at KPFA and Jim's um, studio, Earwax Productions, at earwaxproductions.com. Again, uh, Jim, Eric, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's a great pleasure, great pleasure. All right, again, that was Eric Bowersfeld and Jim McKee, earwaxproductions.com, and coming soon to bardradio.com, and I will definitely keep you up to date on what's going on with that at the radiodramarevival.com blog. Um, next week, we are going to begin a series on Colonial Radio Theater. Uh, no doubt you've heard them, probably may have heard them on the Sonic Society, or have heard some of their own standalone productions. They've done a ton of stuff. Uh, we're going to be featuring a whole selection. Uh, I'm going to have a Western on there, an adventure story, and some comedy, and of course, talk with um, the series creator and producer, Jerry Robbins. So that's going to be fun. That's going to wrap up the month of August. Then we're going to get into a bunch of fun stuff for September. And of course, the scary stories of October are not far off. Uh, of course, in the meantime, you can always check out the blog, radiodramarevival.com. Find a link to subscribe to the podcast, archives of previous episodes, uh, reviews, the in-depth Malleus series by Chris Duker, my weekly column, Fred's Fuse. And while you're there, you can always join the conversation. Please leave a comment or two. Let us know how you felt about the stories. You can also find us on iTunes, search for Radio Drama Revival. Um, that is wrapping it up for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by me, Fred Greenhalge. Copyright of individual shows remains to the original producers, but please do share this show as much as you'd like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Greater Portland, Maine's community radio station, and it is podcast at radiodramarevival.com as a labor of love by yours truly. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great week. Mm-hmm.